Our reading this morning comes from Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 through 9 and 15 through 17. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Jonathan. Well, good morning, Christ community. You guys good? I don't know why I still do this. I just, the Fonz. I'm still a big fan of the Fonz. I don't know why. Thumbs up. But, uh, but it's good to be with you all. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Reed uh, Kappel. Joy to, to be the campus pastor here at the Olathe campus. Uh, really quick, just if, if you're a kiddo here, we have something called the Kid Connect. It's on the back uh, table over here. It's just a great way to kind of follow along with the sermon. So I encourage you guys to grab one if you're in here. We're glad you're here with us. And so, uh, yeah, it's a great thing to follow around. And if you fill out if you find all the words in the word search, you can come get a piece of candy. So excited about that. Um, so a little bit about me. I mean, I still feel like kind of the new guy here in some ways. But uh, one thing about me that I really am really interested in are, are trends. Um, not, not that I'm like a trendy person. I don't consider myself a trendy person. But I'm just fascinated by how certain things become trendy, how, how the, things go viral. Uh, one of my favorite books is uh, Tipping Point by Mal- Malcolm Gladwell. Just a fascinating book. And, and it's what's, what's really fascinating about trends is how things go from being amazing and, and, and sometimes expensive if it's, if it's a product we purchase to becoming like worthless and forgettable and even laughable, like just almost like months later. And a classic example of this from my childhood was starter jackets. Did, did, who, who owned a starter jacket? Kind of growing, some people, okay, there are like four cool people here. Starter jackets, like they were the, like in case you didn't know, like in the 90s, starter jackets were the thing. Like you wore this, you'll hear sports team. So I owned a Seattle Supersonics jacket. I didn't know much about sports. I didn't even know who the Seattle Supersonics were. I just wanted a starter jacket. It was very vain. But I mean, like people fought over these things. They, I mean, people shelled out money for starter jackets. And now what's so fascinating is that Starter is a brand like at Walmart that no one wants. Like it's just like what was so sought after and cool and hip is now just something that like Walmart doesn't even want to sell. You know, it's just fascinating how things ebb and flow over time. And, and this happens with things like fashion. It happens with diet plans. You know, one decade's like eat eggs, one decade, decades don't eat eggs. Like it's just, it's just crazy how things change. But the same ebb and flow effect I think takes place even when it comes to matters of moral conviction and ethical behavior. That what one culture in time considers morally righteous, just give it time and over a certain number of decades, that same behavior becomes morally reprehensible. And, and this is, I mean, probably good in, in some ways. I mean, it's good that we probably don't burn witches at the stake anymore. We've progressed from that. But, but it's interesting that in certain cultures, certain practices were said to be good and right for the culture and for humanity. But then give it some time and things change. But the question we should ask is, is this how we determine what is ultimately right and wrong, just and unjust, fair and equitable? Should we let the shifting sands of kind of cultural normativity determine and dictate what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil? 
essentially the question is, who is to say what is right and what is wrong? And, and if you've been with us, we've been in this series called A Story Worth Living. And, and in it, what we've been trying to do is, is look at a, a numerous cultural narratives, these, these underlying beliefs and systems of the way in which we look at the world almost unquestioningly. Like we just assume them, we adopt them, and they form and shape so much of what we believe and how we live. And what we're trying to do is, is not just critique them, say like, well, we're Christians and we have the truth and that's bad. We want to look at them and say, why do we believe these things? Where have these beliefs come from? And are they actually for our good? And the way we've kind of been doing that is looking at how these certain cultural narratives kind of match up and, and contrast to the opening chapters in Genesis. And this morning we turn to look at what I think is probably the most pervasive underlying narrative in our culture, and that is the narrative that says, I decide what is right. I decide what is right. And, and one thing we've been trying to do to create space for, for interaction and conversation around this, because we can't cover everything in one sermon, uh, but we, we have a text in line. You can text in questions throughout the sermon, even afterwards if you have a question that comes up uh, later on. But text in those questions that we would love to dialogue uh, with you kind of via uh, Facebook Live. We respond to these questions on Monday afternoon, so I invite you to text your questions in to that number. Uh, so yeah, so I encourage you to do that. Uh, but before we jump in, I just want to pray for our time as we hear from God's Word and wrestle through this very interesting narrative in our day. So let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we come to you in prayer asking that you would bless the teaching of your word, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, even as we heard from Psalm 19 this morning, Lord, would, would, would the words of my mouth and would the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Lord, we pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. So, uh, one thing I want to do kind of at first just to begin is, and we've kind of had the same pattern throughout this series, is, is kind of this yes, but no, but yes kind of uh, pattern of saying there, there, is, there is something good about these cultural narratives. It's not just wholesale throw them out and they're wrong, but there is something to affirm in this first part uh, of this idea of I decide what is right. Because even though we, we lack a consensus as a culture, as a people, as a, as a race, on, on kind of how, how we should live and why we should do right, I think one thing is true is that we are clear on the what of rightness. We are clear on the what of rightness. And wh what I mean by that is that we all have a, a, an awareness of fairness. We, we sense that there are certain things that are right and we should pursue them, and there are certain things that are wrong and we should abstain from them. And, and now it doesn't mean that we're all on the same page, but we at least have some category for justice and injustice, right and wrong, good and evil. And, and furthermore, there's a sense in which this, this kind of I decide what is right, I mean, there, there's something to celebrate in the sense that our culture in some ways is deeply moral. I mean, there, there are definitely immoral things to critique and to, to engage in conversation about, but in some ways, our culture is deeply moral. I think we'd be naive to just kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, this, this culture is going to hell in a handbasket entirely. Like, there is some goodness and moral goodness in our culture. I mean, just even think about, I mean, there, there's such an interest and engagement in matters of, of social justice and, and economic development, and these have become kind of trends in recent years. Or you, you even see it on a global scale, how the, the, the child death rate has, has dropped significantly since 1950. There's a stat here that from 1950, the child mortality rate was 20 million children died per year 
1950. That has dropped down to almost 6 million since 1950. That is an amazing progression. We, we are seeing change in our world. And so I think we'd be naive just to say our world is just entirely corrupt all the time, every single place in the world. We have to see that there is a sense in which there is moral goodness. And I think this is where the early chapters of Genesis help us kind of make sense of this and understand this. We were created to operate as moral beings who make moral choices with consequences. And that's very clear from the, from the first command given to humanity in Genesis chapter 2. And we read these words in verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat it. For in that day, in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. Now these verses contain, like, like I said, the first command to all of humanity. And they set up a world in which human beings are obligated to do the right thing and abstain from the wrong thing. And I think this deeply affirms our, our culture. I mean, we see this. I mean, we live in a culture where we're expected to do the right thing and consequences come and we don't. But, but here's the thing, and some of you might be thinking this, is that, okay, so, so you're saying that we need the Bible to tell us that. Like, we need the Bible to know what is good and how t- that we should do good things. Like, is that what you're saying? And, and I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that we need the Bible to be moral people. And I'm actually, I'm not even saying you need to believe in God in order to be a moral person. Because I have many non-religious friends who are much more moral than I am, much more upstanding than I am, more honest and integral. I'm not saying that you must believe in God in order to be a moral person. But what I am saying is that existence in God is necessary in order for us to be a moral people. There must be the existence of God. Whether you recognize him or not, the existence of God is what leads us to be moral people. And that's because the more important question about morality isn't the question of if we should be good, it's the, rather the question of why we are good. What is it that compels us to pursue the good over the wrong? Why must we stand for justice and stand against injustice? We may be clear on the what of rightness, but what I think our our culture is confused on is the why of rightness. We may be clear on the what of rightness, but I think that we are confused on the why of rightness. We all sense and, and even have a desire to do good. And we may even find ourselves following through with with that conviction and that belief. But at the end of the day, the cultural narrative of I decide what is right, it actually kind of works against the grain of our desire to be good as a people. And and let me explain what I mean by that. Even though Even though we champion this idea, I decide what is right, I determine what is right and good for me, you reserve the right to determine what is right and good for you. But even though we we kind of champion this idea, we know we can't functionally live that way. We we know that there are certain standards and obligations and rules and and traditions that we have to adhere by, otherwise we're not going to be able to function as a society. So regardless of whether you think it's right, we all know there are certain things we must abide by if we're going to progress and live in a civil manner in our culture. And furthermore, I mean, like we know, like the, I, the, the idea of I decide what is right, that doesn't even get us past kindergarten. You know, I mean, like you, you can't get into a, a place with a bunch of six-year-olds where one, like this is what is right and this, this is what is right. You, you can't have a civil organization even in a kindergarten class, much less in the complexity of a multicultural world that we live in today. 
Because if ultimate rightness, if ultimate rightness is determined by me, and I decide what is right for me, if it's determined by the individual, then there could never be any kind of consensus on on how we live and agree upon what is right, what is good, beautiful, and just. We wouldn't be able to functionally live this out. There would be no real basis for for litigation or legislation. And many people are are recognizing this. what, What is the ultimate basis by which we are appealing to standards of rightness, goodness, fairness, and justice? And yet, at the same time, we, we sense that there is this sense of oughtness, that we ought to live in a certain way. But when we say, I decide what is right for myself, we are, we are undermining the ability to have any kind of consensus on rightness, justice, and fairness. Which is why it's no surprise we find in our culture such polarity and, and, and division when, when you interact with someone of a, of a divergent viewpoint. I mean, we, we are just yelling at each other. We've gotten to this point where we don't know how to disagree. Why? Because each person is coming from a place of, I decide what is right. And when we are not appealing to some common standard by which we measure our own moral codes, we're never going to get anywhere. If each person is at the center of their own moral universe, you'll never find any kind of progression. This is what kind of creates the, the, the cultural stalemate that we find so often in our conversations about religion, about politics, about morality in general. And, and if you think about it, I mean, the, the, whole, the whole narrative, the, the whole idea of I decide what is right, it really cannot functionally be lived out. Even though we may say it, it may sound really cool and kind of and hip, you know, it's very modern and progressive, we know we can't functionally embrace that worldview, that, that way of thinking. Really, the, the I decide what is right, it only can exist in like the dissertation papers of like philosophy graduate students. Like that's, that's the only place where this kind of concept can have any kind of foundation in a theoretical world, but not in a real world. And, but at the same time, I recognize that the, the alternative, so some of you might be thinking, okay, so are you saying that, that the alternative to this is just adopting and swallowing the, the Genesis pill, that, you know, that, that we have to embrace, in order to understand morality, we have to believe in this kind of collection of fairy tales, a, a world of, with a magical tree and this talking snake and, and this, this, this kind of forbidden fruit and this weird nudist colony. Like, is, the, is this the basis of morality? How do we determine what is right, good, and just? And what I would say is, yeah, I, I totally get that. This seems like, 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 is this our only option? But what I would say is that I don't think the, the narrative of I decide what is right, I don't think it helps us. I don't think it gets us to a place where we can actually function as a people. Because if I decide what is right, if I embrace that, I am simultaneously denying any kind of moral standard, any kind of moral objective standard by which I'm measuring my actions and behaviors by. And yet... I also have this sense that, and this boldness that, that what I believe ought to be done. And so by denying any moral objective standard, we're actually undermining, we're removing our ability to make any kind of moral claim at all. And so, yes, I understand Genesis may be a hard pill to swallow, but if we remove God from the picture, if we embrace a purely materialistic world where all that matters is matter and that's it, we remove from us the ability to make any real moral claim about anything. Because, and, and th- this is interesting, that, I mean, many, many people who kind of embrace that worldview, this materialistic, all that matters is matter and that's it, they recognize the fact that there is no basis of morality. 
Richard Dawkins, maybe you're familiar with him, a well-known evolutionary biologist at Oxford, uh, wrote the book God Delusion, many others. But, but he recognizes this in his book, Unweaving the Rainbow. And he says this, he says, there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. We are machines for propagating DNA. Now that's, I mean, that, that's a bold, blunt, honest claim. I mean, if, if, if all that is is matter and that's it, we have no real objective moral standards. And so all we are are highly evolved mammals that propagate DNA. Try to put that on a Hallmark card, you know, for your anniversary. Congratulations on one more celestial rotation around the sun whilst we propagate DNA together. Just, <laughs> yeah, don't think there will be much celebrating after that. But, but, but seriously, that's just the honesty. That's the honesty. If this is our world, then what is our basis for appealing to a moral standard? If all we are are highly evolved mammals without any real objective meaning or purpose to our existence, then we cannot conclude that there are any real moral objective, uh, real objective moral values. So murder is, is, is wrong not because it is the desecration and destruction of someone who possesses inherent worth, but murder is wrong simply because it is an impediment, it is a, it is a barrier for our species to progress and to get to the top of the food chain. And so while we may come up with some standard of morality, we have to admit that if, if all that is is the material world and that is it, then there really is no such thing as evil, and there's no such thing as love. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, like, like evil is simply a reality that creates challenges in our unguided journey to get atop of the food chain. And, and love is really just this neurochemical event that motivates us, our species to propagate DNA and move us forward. And so we may call it love, and we may call evil evil, but they're really just these byproducts of an unguided process of evolution. And so we can't really say that child abuse is wrong and evil. And we can't say that the love that you have for your spouse or for your mother or for your sibling is genuine. It is simply a means by which our species progresses. And it's this thinking that has led certain uh, uh, people, certain thinkers to conclude essentially, well, if, if we're going to embrace this idea, then we have to live what, what philosopher Dr. Loyal Rue calls the noble lie. And Dr. Loyal Rue, he's a, a philosophy professor who, like many modern thinkers, kind of essentially thinks that science has eroded away any credibility for belief uh, in the supernatural or a religious claim to be true at all. But, but in his honest reflection, he also recognizes that we can't just suspend belief in a moral standard. He knows that to, to deny God or to erode away God by science removes any basis for morality. But he also recognizes that we can't functionally live that way, and so he embraces what he calls the noble lie. And he says this, What I mean by the noble lie is one that deceives us, tricks us, compels us beyond self-interest, beyond ego, beyond family, nation, and race that will deceive us into the view that our moral discourse must serve the interests not only of ourselves and each other, but those of the earth as well. And then Rue concludes this thought by saying, very honestly, without such lies, we cannot live. If we are really honest, this is the best option that we have. If, if there is no God, if we remove him from the picture, and all that matters is matter itself, this is the best option we have to embrace some kind of functional moral life as an individual and as a community, to embrace a noble lie. Especially if, if we embrace these two premises of there is no God 
and yet we ought to still do what is right. So let me say this. If you find yourself resonating with this idea of I decide what is right, if that, if that sounds cool and hip and progressive, like, yeah, I think that's right. We should, you choose what is right for you, I choose what's right for me. If that's what you buy into, and, and you still feel this tension that, that you, you ought to do good, may I just suggest something for us to consider? If we can't find a satisfying reason to be moral, because we have embraced this premise, there is no God, then why not reconsider the premise? If, if, we, if we've said, like, there, there's really no good reason to be good just for goodness sake, I guess that's it. If, if, that's, if that's your satisfying reason, and it's really not that satisfying, why not reconsider the premise that you have embraced that there is no God? Again, we are confused about the why of rightness. And the reason I think we're confused about the why of rightness is because we have removed ourselves from the who of rightness. We have separated ourselves. We have rebelled against the who of rightness. The reason we are confused about the why of rightness is because we are lost without the who of rightness. And again, this is where Genesis is helpful to us in showing that the foundation for knowing right and wrong comes from God himself. Again, look at verses 16 and 17. I just want to read it one more time. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. Now the knowledge here, sometimes it's confusing about what this tree is actually about and why it exists. The knowledge of good and evil referred to in this this text is not simply the knowledge that that love is good and you should do that and hatred is bad and you shouldn't do that. It's, it's not that simplistic. Again, we don't need the Bible to tell us we should love people and not hate people. But rather what is being described here, the knowledge of good and evil, it is an infinite knowledge. It is a perfect knowledge of what ultimately prospers life for all of humanity at all times and what ultimately destroys life for humanity and creation in all times and all places. It is a much wider scope than just what's good and what's bad. The knowledge of good and evil has an infinite knowledge of what ultimately prospers life and what ultimately destroys life. And so what we see is that God is the one who provides the foundation of that knowledge for what is good and what is evil. And so apart from him and his revealed word, we cannot fully know what is ultimately good and what is ultimately evil. But one, one thing to make clear as well, when, when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, it's not that they now possess that knowledge. It's not that they now see perfectly what is right and what is evil, but rather what is happening in this first sin of rebelling against God's holy and good standard is Adam and Eve essentially saying, I want to decide what's right. I want to possess the knowledge of good and evil. I want to be the determiner of what is ultimately right for me and for all of, all of creation and what is ultimately wrong for me and for all of creation. They want to decide for themselves. Uh, on this text, one, one commentator puts it this way. To enjoy the good that, that God has created for us, to enjoy the good, we must trust God and obey him. If we disobey, we will have to decide for ourselves what is good and what is not good. Now, while the modern man and woman may see such a prospect as desirable, to the author of Genesis, this is the worst fate that could have befallen humanity. When we see this, when we understand the narrative of Genesis, it's making sense of the the moral predicament we're all in. We all want to preserve the right to decide what is right and good for ourselves, and yet we know we can't functionally do so. 
Even though we've, we've granted ourselves the authority to choose what is right and wrong, we do not possess the ability to do so. Let me say that one more time. Even though we've granted ourselves, as, as a species, the authority to determine what is right and wrong, we don't possess the ability. Why? Because how on earth can we claim what is ultimately right and good for all people at all times? I mean, have we gotten any closer to a consensus as a people based on some human-created standard of what is ultimately right and leads to human flourishing for all people? We're not making much progress really at all when you think about it from a global perspective. To live without God in this world, it's, it's like being on a, a treacherous journey at sea. And you have, you have very limited knowledge. Like the only knowledge you have of, like, of, of a boat and sailing and the ocean is that it's good to be above water and it's bad to be below water. Like the, if that's the only knowledge you have, you are not equipped to be out on the open waters. Like no one would let you man a boat. In the same way, this is kind of how we're living. We have such a limited knowledge of what is ultimately right and good for all people. And yet, we think through our limited perspective, we can navigate the waters of life individually and collectively. But not only is our knowledge of right and wrong insufficient, it is profoundly and fantastically arrogant to make the claim that we can determine what is ultimately right and wrong for all people in all places at all times is a fantastically arrogant claim. Because we've seen it, like that what one culture deems morally righteous, another deems morally reprehensible. And sometimes it's even the same culture and it just takes a few decades for that to change. And if you really think about it, we are lost without the who of rightness. We need someone to tell us what is right because we have such a finite, limited perspective. And really, this, this, is, this was the heart behind the first sin. If you, I mean, if you think about in the garden, what, 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 what were Adam and Eve doing? They were saying, we don't want to live under the standard of God. We want to be our own God. We want to decide what is right. From the very first human sin to the sins that you and I will commit this afternoon, the heart behind it is the desire to say, I want to be my own God. I want to decide what is right. But we can't. I mean, if we're really, I mean, do, do, do any of us really think that we possess the perspective, the wisdom and insight throughout all eternity to say, this is what is truly right and leads to human flourishing, and this is what is truly wrong and leads to death and destruction? We may be able to know enough to, to get by, to function in this world in a civil manner, maybe to try to avoid certain wars from breaking out, but, but we have to admit that we are profoundly lost when it comes to truly knowing what is the rightest right and the wrongest wrong. And at the end of the day, we can't decide what's right. We do need to be told because we don't have that perspective. We need to be told because we have been separated from the one who is the source of all goodness, truth, and beauty. It's not just that we aren't God. It's that we have rebelled against God. The reason we are so confused about what is right and ultimately what leads to the benefit of all people is because we've been separated from the source of all goodness and truth. This is why, this is why there's such confusion. This is why there's such polarity. And again, I decide what is right doesn't help the situation. So as we wrap this up, I wanted to share a few, a few thoughts. The first thing I would say is this, is that, you know, some of you might be thinking, well, gosh, how do I even, 
How do I move forward? How do I know what is right and what is wrong? And what I would say is, don't let this kind of philosophical conversation, don't, don't let it prevent you from, from doing good. So don't, don't stop doing good. Don't stop loving your neighbor. Don't stop pursuing good. Don't stop exploring what is good in this world. Because the thing is, all of us possess the image of God. Yes, the image has been fractured because of sin, but it doesn't mean it has been annihilated. We still have this ability to, to sense and recognize goodness and evil and to pursue good over evil. And we see that the image of God is in other people, and that, that's what compels us to love people inherently. So don't stop being good. But the second thing I would say for us to consider is that don't settle for goodness sake. You know, if you're going to pursue good, like at least ask yourself the question, why, why am I being good? What is it that compels me? What is my motivation? Why must I live in this certain way? What is it? And it can't just be for goodness sake. The Santa Claus philosophy does not last. We can't be good for goodness sake. But thirdly, what I would say is this. We need to stop being, we, don't stop being good. Don't settle for goodness sake. But also don't, don't miss the good news. Don't miss the good news that, that ultimately serves as the foundation and the empowering locomotive for living the good life that God has designed us for. You see, our problem, the problem that faces all of us, is far deeper than we could ever realize. Our, our problem is not that we lack the freedom to choose what is right and wrong. That's actually what produced the problem we're in. But rather, our fundamental problem as humans comes from the fact that we have become lawbreakers by denying the lawmaker. Our problem is not we don't have the ability to choose what laws we want to live by. Our problem comes from denying the lawmaker and thus by becoming lawbreakers. But the hope that we have, the hope that we have is that the lawmaker himself became a lawkeeper so that you and I, the lawbreakers, might be forgiven and restored and redeemed. The good news of the gospel is that God, the creator of all things, the standard of goodness, the lawmaker, became a lawkeeper, the son Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life for you and for me. The lawmaker became a lawkeeper so that we might be forgiven as lawbreakers. The bad news is that you and I cannot decide what is right. We don't possess that perspective and that knowledge on an ultimate scale. But even though, even though we've granted ourselves the authority, we do not possess the ability to do so. But the good news is that through Christ Jesus, God can declare us right and provide for us the satisfying answer for what is true, right, good, and beautiful. Jesus came to become obedient to the law. As, as Paul says in Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And so the question for us is, do we want, do we want to be people who decide what is right? And I think we do. I think we all want to decide what is right. Then decide to follow Jesus, the one who is right, and the one who through his life, death, and resurrection can declare you right. If you want to decide what is right, then decide to follow Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you in prayer asking, Lord, that you would, that you would reveal to us where we have so arrogantly and naively seen ourselves as, as the standards of rightness and goodness. 
Lord, help us to see that that is actually what produced the problem that we're all in. Lord, help us to see that, that you are the standard of goodness. Help us to see that living in accordance with your design for life is what leads to our, our good, to the flourishing of all humanity and all of creation. And Lord, help us to see that, that in our attempts to be our own gods and to choose what is right, we have perpetuated the problem of sin and brokenness in this world. Lord, would you give us the ability by your spirit to be humbled before you to say, I have such limited knowledge, but you, God, have limitless knowledge. I trust in your design for life. May we walk in your ways. And may we see the good news of Jesus, the law keeper who came to die for us, the lawbreakers. It's in his name that we pray this. Amen. Well, again, thank you for being here. It was just a joy to, to worship with you. And um, this, this stuff is... is t- it's challenging. I mean, it's been challenging for me to teach through and preach through, and I, I hope it is, it's forced us to think about what is it that we believe about life, about truth, about reality, about goodness, about God. And I hope it has caused us to pause and to reflect and ask ourselves, why is it that we believe what we believe? Uh, and, and my prayer is that we would, through this series and beyond, that we would increasingly see how limited and finite our perspective is, and yet how limitless and infinite God's perspective is. Uh, so, so as we leave this place uh, to be the church scattered in the places that God has called us, uh, I wanted to, to share our benediction uh, from Romans chapter 12, our good word for the road. May we, may we enter this week living in light of the one who is right and who has declared us right. So hear these words. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Go in peace. Have a great week.